welcome to Stuff We've Seen. This is your host, James Gand. With me, as always, is Teal. Uh, we're going to be picking up the action from our last episode. Uh, that was just too long to keep as one episode, and we didn't want to lose all the content as we talk about the works of Brian De Palma. So here we are. We were just starting to get into Body Double. Um, and so I'm going to let uh, Teal take it from here. And then he decides to go back to uh, trying to be an auteur in low-budget thrillers and comes up with Body Double. Yeah. Now, here's the thing. When I'm 14, that's when it comes out. My dad wouldn't take me to see it because he probably didn't want to see it. Uh, it bombed. It was out for like a couple of weeks. Yeah. So I had to wait till I got a video. That's another film, by the way. And I'm not sure what it was that got it the X rating, but it was rated X. Yes, I remember that. Yeah. Um, it's by the way, some of his early work too. Uh, the one that I, Hi Mom, was also rated X and had to be cut. Oh, interesting. Yeah, yeah. Okay. And that had, you know, there's uh, there's some stuff in there that, I, I'm not saying I understand. I, I never think a movie should be X, but he had to cut some stuff. But they did release, they started doing on video unedited versions. Oh, yes, yes, yeah. yeah un, they would call unrated. it the, unrated. Yeah. And my friend had it, and uh, I got to see the unrated version of Body Double at the time. Okay. I couldn't tell you, having rewatched it just the other day, I wouldn't be able to tell you what it was about it that was was cut out of this version. Well, it's very likely that it's similar to Dress to Kill, where it's like 15 seconds of nudity or something. And I thought it was probably the vibe. I think there was a little extra blood in the in the, the famous drill scene. Oh, okay. oh, in the fam- famous drill yeah. scene. Yeah, and maybe which something is the, the most p- absurd scene ever. Well, again, it's De Palma really stretching things out. Well, he's stretching things out, but also like... <laughs> it doesn't make any sense, yeah. It, it doesn't make any sense. It, it, there's this part, just on the physicality of it, she's like cowering and he's coming at her with the drill and the drill is so long that it's not a very good weapon like you have to have somebody standing still in order to drill them hey man i saw the driller killer so you tell me man i that guy was drilling people <laughs> left and right nobody <laughs> nobody seemed to make a move <laughs> yeah so she just kind of stands there waiting to be drilled yeah it was all basically so that he could have a really cool scene i guess and have that scene where the blood's coming from the ceiling and it was all for that but here's what it does have it has the chemosphere the what? The chemosphere. What's that? Chemosphere is that famous architectural house. Oh, yeah. oh, oh, yes. Oh, yes, it does. And so, you know. When I didn't know that's what its that's name the, was. Oh, it's a very famous. Uh, matter of fact, uh, the guy who owns, you know, you know, Tashin, those big yeah. photo art books. Yeah. The guy, the guy who, the, who owns Tashin, he owns it now. Oh, okay. House. And I have always loved the chemosphere. Yep. And it's just cool that that gets to be used as a set piece Yeah, uh, that they shot at the chemosphere. So one little shout out I'm going to make right now, and I'm going to make it again in the next film, is Greg Henry. Greg Henry is another one of those De Palma yes. uh, regulars, I call him. Exactly. And he, there's just something about that guy I like. Me too. I really like him. He's, he's really good, and he's great in this role. Yeah, except for just like Dressed to Kill. I don't even think the first time I saw it, I I didn't know what was happening. Well, no, you know that there's something off about this guy because the situation is so preposterous. Yes. Well, that's another thing, too. There's nothing I bought in this movie Body Double, but I went with it. I felt exactly the same way. I didn't buy any of it. Only because the setup relied on on the main character doing everything to a T that this guy could have hoped the guy would have done. And no, and that doesn't yes. work in real life. Well, and also he's not like somebody that they've spent a huge amount of time researching 
like this is the guy he'll fall for it no he seems kind of chosen at random and then he does everything perfectly for the plot to work out but see i think this is where de palma i think didn't worry about that stuff because he thought if the filmmaking is good people are going to go with it and i think it was a style that was falling out of favor and that's the reason why it was a bomb because people are like this is ridiculous and i don't think de palma understood that people's uh, were changing. Yeah, and and the the film is a little bit of a throwback. Yeah, but I love the lead performance by Craig Wasson. I was just gonna say, I, I was, literally that was my next sentence, and I loved it as a kid too. He's a he's a really compelling actor. You know, was it just as a kid that I liked Craig Wasson? I know he was also in the um, Nightmare on Elm Street Three Dream Warriors, yes. and I'm yep. like, do I just like him as a as an actor, or uh, or am I going to be disappointed as an adult? But no, I found him very compelling through the entire movie yeah i totally agree and and he's a good um he's a good de palma actor right he can do sort of the the larger expressions sort of those over-the-top facial expressions but at the same time he does it with this pathos underneath that it it doesn't feel he injected something real into the performance in terms of like I felt kind of the guy's panic and also like his weird relationship with his job. Yes. I thought was something he uh, he did a really interesting job with. And again, Dennis Franz. Dennis Franz is in a lot of his movies. Yes. And this time I like the music a lot by uh, Pino Donaggio. He does sort of like a throwback to sort of Tangerine Dream a little bit. Yeah, I can see that. Yeah. Here's a question. Yeah. I wonder if De Palma knew guys like Craig Wasson's character who, you know, they were actors, but they had weird idiosyncrasies like he had claustrophobia and stuff. I I have a feeling De Palma probably ran into actors that he had difficulties with. And you had mentioned this before that part of the idea for Body Double came from using the Body Double for Angie Dickinson. Yeah. Now, here's a question and I don't know the answer to this. I guess I'd have to rewatch it again. I hadn't seen this movie in 30 years. Yeah. I watch it. And so I couldn't remember all the plot points. Yeah. Though I knew Greg Henry's character. I, I knew I knew yeah. that. But I forgot that what he was watching in the window was the body double. Right. The question is, did De Palma pull another fake out? We are supposed to now know, oh, Melanie Griffiths was that character. Right. But was she actually that character for the scenes? Right. I don't know if she was okay. or not. Yep, might be worth finding out. Yeah, or maybe it really was Deborah Shelton. And it could have been. So I really don't know that. Okay. And I got to say, I watched this movie last week. Well, you said at first in the first episode we were talking about, it sounded like you didn't like it. Well, okay. So it was <laughs> it was one of the ones I first rewatched. Okay. Oh, yeah. So it's funny when you first write until you start seeing several of his movies. Yeah, and I was annoyed because I felt like the first hour was great, and then it gave us one of the cop info dumps and, <laughs> yes. and explained everything about an hour in, and and then I felt like the movie lost a little bit of direction. I feel like Craig Wasson kept me in the movie. Okay, so I watched it last, and now thinking back on this movie, I could not describe the plot to you. <laughs> I mean, I could tell you the premise. I could tell you what happens in the first hour. But after that, like, I, I, I could not recount for you the ins and outs of this movie. Well, okay, so I have a one. I mean, my biggest problem with a lot of De Palma movies is he doesn't nail the ending. Yes. And in Body Double, I felt he doesn't nail the ending. I don't think he nails the third act in Body Double, not just the ending. Well, I think what he's going for with his finales yeah. is I think he wants 
to have one of those great finales like uh, Hitchcock had with, say, North by Northwest, where right. you have Cary Grant hanging off the Mount right. Rushmore and you don't know whether he's going to fall off or he's going to get pulled up. And they try to do that with Body Double and then suddenly they're in and he's back into the movie set. Right. And, and But it just doesn't quite have that same thing. And instead, it's a little bit more confusing. And I'm yes. still struggling about Body Double. And <laughs> I'm wondering if... The entire movie wasn't just taking place in Craig Wasson's head as he was inside this casket and that he was facing all his fears. And oh, wow. while he was having these fears, so that when he's finally back in the casket right. and he's able to actually say, no, we're going to go through the, the thing. Right. Because then the last shot where the credits are going over, this is where they're doing the takeoff on dressed to kill right. but he's now it's at a porno so the question is was all along is he's actually shooting a softcore porno movie horror film and he was having this moment and he of, was having this breakdown yeah and so you're seeing the breakdown but that's all a fantasy and now we're popped back into the movie at the end so that's what i think might be the okay. way the body double and i enjoy it much more thinking of it that way well i think i'm gonna have to watch it again actually this is the thing now this is the thing where i'm just <laughs> Obsessed, is I'm finding myself watching these movies and then whether I've liked them or not, I kind of feel like I want to watch them again. Well, because they're so detailed, even though they don't, he just has so much going on visually. And so there's things going on in the background. There's mirrors, there's switcheroos, just as pure cinema. It's so pleasing because of the shots and the editing, but, and these plots are silly. <laughs> well, okay. So now we have to lead up. This is the last film that I personally am going to want to talk about. Yeah. And I got to set the stage because it all adds up because I have such a history with this movie. Oh, before we get into this movie, let's spend a minute or two on passion. Okay. Because you said that, that was the last movie you wanted to talk about was the one coming up, but. Well, I didn't say it's the last one of the program. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> you okay. could have had the okay. last word if you want to go okay. passion. Okay. Well, we can no. go passion now. No, no, no. We'll come back to passion. Okay. So Raising Cain. Yes. 1992. Yep. You know, it's his first film after Bonfire of the Vanities, right? Yes. And it, it, it felt like at the time, like he was going back to, you know, the body double dressed to kill De Palma. Yeah. With, you know, so it was, it was definitely more of his vein. Yes. And I was excited to see this film. And I think that the reviews were kind of mixed, but there were some positives. I was excited to see it. And I was in LA at the time. I had just graduated film school and I had a friend that I went to USC with for my freshman year and we stayed in touch. We were good friends and we were going to like make it in Hollywood together kind of thing. Yeah. And, um, we, we had a falling out shortly after this, not because of this movie, but um, <laughs> it would have been great if it was because maybe. of the movie, <laughs> but he was excited to see this raising cane. And we went out uh, to see me Valley. There was these uh, dollar movie theaters. It was called the okay. pepper, called the pepper tree. Okay. And it was out near Northridge. It was out where like the- uh, Was this second run stuff? Second run, yeah. Yeah. And you could see, uh, sometimes you could see double features for $1. Right, okay. All right, so they had Unlawful Entry playing with Raising Cane. Oh, wow, okay. All right, so Unlawful Entry was first, and that had Ray Liotta in it, yep. I think, and Madeline Stowe. And that was Kurt pretty- Kurt Russell. And Kurt Russell, yep. And it was pretty terrible. Yeah. <laughs> and so that was over and we're waiting for this raising cane i'm excited about it the movie comes on but it comes on in a weird spot and i do remember 
not much about this. And then actually, it wasn't until I rewatched Raising Cain for this uh, show yeah. that I even even this memory came back. Was suddenly we were in a police investigator's office, and there were it was a lot of explanation, and they had this woman uh, with some cancer <laughs> patient with a wig, and they were getting into an elevator, and there was this really intricate. Uh, you know, uh, follow steady shot. Cam shot Wait, that was the that was the opening scene. Yeah. And, oh my god! And that... it's going on for twenty. And we suddenly realized. I'm like, wait a minute. This is not the start of the movie. What is this? This is crazy. So we're running out to the project. We're like, hey, wait a minute. Stop. They're like, we can't. It's like, look, we could. <laughs> we can't. Yeah. We got this thing. We're going to, you know, we have to play the whole reel. We can't just rewind it. We can't shut it out. We could, <laughs> we cut it out and it's going to be too much to cut it out. And then like, right. start it back. It's like, you're going to have, look, you know, you can come back, but you're going to have to watch the first reel and then we can, we can then get the other reel, <laughs> you know, whatever. <laughs> So we watched this first, you know, when you watch 20 minutes of a movie in the middle yeah. and a movie like this where plot details and a certain order make sense. Yes. We we really didn't know what the hell was going on. So it was hard to even pay attention to those 20 yeah. minutes. Then they had to stop the film or whatever. And then I, I don't know. I, I don't remember the details, but suddenly we get to rewatch, but we get to watch the movie from the beginning, but not with those 20 minutes in it. <laughs> so then we're watching a movie like, okay, but- think about this at some point we get to the reel that we yeah. already watched and instead it goes over to the next part of the film so we go and we jump and so now the film feels like it's only like an hour and 10 minutes and what we saw which we saw the whole movie just not yeah. in that order was such a confusing bizarre mess right and it was like overacting and it just didn't flow yeah and that shot that you're talking about that you saw as the opening shot uh, yeah. It, well, we thought it was going to be a great movie because I'm like, wow, this is a pretty cool shot. But I, I actually hated that shot the first time I saw the movie. It's funny. But it also, does. so when you, you talk about how he explains a lot of stuff. Yes. All the stuff that explains the movie is happening during that 20 minutes. Yes. Yes. And so we the, see that when we haven't seen the rest of the movie and now our brains have to try to understand what's going on. So we walked out of this movie thinking, I thought it was the worst film I'd seen that year. Yeah. But I also was intrigued saying, boy, I wonder if I could get out here and see it again. So if I could see it the whole time. And the only thing that kept me from doing it was more mm -hmm. like, well, what if they don't ever fix it? And right, that it, right, and that right. That, I don't want to go there and find the reel is mixed up again because I don't trust this place, the pepper tree. So that was it. I had, and I just always thought this was the stinker in the right. De Palma. And yet I'd heard things over the years that this was a much better movie. Um, so I was always intrigued about it. And then yeah. for this show, I decided, okay, I'm going to watch it. And I did. And I, you know, I still had some problems with it, a lot of problems, but I, I enjoyed it more than I did the first time. And it was probably because I got to see it from beginning to end. Well, and because you're already in your De Palma zone. And I'm in the De Palma zone. So some of these things you enjoy just because they're De Palma-isms. However, like a lot of these movies, I just start digging into some of the research. And yes. I think I knew about this and then plum forgot about it in my brain because I just said I wasn't going to ever watch this movie again. Right. Discovered that there was a reason why this movie didn't make that much sense and it just didn't quite flow the way it should. And then I also felt that there's reveals in this movie that happen way too early. Yes. Then because they happen so early, they don't pay off other things. Right. Was that after test screenings, De Palma felt a lot of pressure to 
get the action going faster. Yes, and but the, <laughs> which which didn't happen in Dress to Kill. He got to do things his way. Yes, and in Body Double, and uh, I mean, and in Sisters, where you spend like a half an hour setting it up. But see, we're in '92. We're in a new, new, new yeah. way. So he felt pressure. So they re-edited the movie. They didn't add scenes. They didn't take out scenes. They re-edited the movie and put the scenes basically the first forty-five minutes to an hour in a completely different order. Yes. And that is why the movie fails. It fails miserably. I, I mean, I, I watched it, uh, the, the theatrical cut and uh, or the original release cut, and it's a disaster. The logic doesn't add up. You can't tell who's doing what, when. It It's all over-explained too easily. There's not very much tension. Well, it starts off with... You know, with John Lithgow kidnapping, kidnapping some woman that we've never been introduced to and her kid. And we just don't understand what the hell's going on. We have no idea. It's it's starting. It feels like it's starting in the middle of the movie. And it is actually. And that's <laughs> not out of step. You're thinking for a De Palma movie, it's going to be a puzzle. Right. But that scene and then it, it brings in the, uh, the the alternate personality of the brother character uh in that scene and sort of and then it goes back to his wife and and it's very weird sort of cutting back and forth between these stories it just it's hard to follow the like the whole thing with the presence with the clocks yep very difficult to follow what was going on in this cut so that's why i was like this guy it's a it's a mess so what the story was supposed to be is it starts off with focused on the wife. Yes. And you're supposed to think it's the wife's story. And that he's kind of this side character, the husband. And he's like the perfect husband that she's cheating yeah. on. And then something happens. And here's the thing. So I, you know, being me, intrigued, I decide to watch the director's cut. Yes. And see it in order. And even though I just watched the whole movie. Yeah. And it's really hard sometimes to rewatch something you just seen. Yeah. Like I, I watched it the next day. You, you watched the director's cut? Yes. Oh, oh, I didn't know you actually got to watch the director's cut. Oh, so, yeah. Okay, okay. So that's how I did. So literally, I know it's, I just seen it, but instantly from the first second, I'm watching this director's cut. I'm like, I'm watching a different movie here. It's a completely different movie. And I realized this is what De Palma set out to do because exactly at the 20 minute mark. Yeah is when the pillowcase goes right over. Yes. And and then it goes into flashback. And then it goes into flashback. And now, now you're intrigued, right? Yeah. That's the beat, the 20-minute mark, right? Yeah. You think it's one movie, and then you're like, whoa. And then it becomes something else, and, and it reveals all this stuff that's been going on. And, and, the, and it all works because of the way it's constructed. Okay, so what happens is it's on her until he smothers her. And then it goes into flashback showing him through that whole opening sequence. Yes. And then it picks up again with him smothering her. Right. Right, Because he does these like it's sort of like what he does in Snake Eyes, too. It's the whole Rashomon thing where. Yeah. So exactly. So you see it from her point of view. Then you see it from his point of view. But what the studio cut did was cut back and forth between those two stories. Yeah, and also at the beginning, you know John Lithgow's character is insane. Exactly, and this this is a slow reveal on that. Well, so when watching that, right? So that you know, because I I did remember enough that I knew he was you know multiple characters, all this stuff. So watching the theatrical cut again, it was very aware of the scene, the smothering scene. Like, hmm, he's got a pillow in under his arm, exactly. and he's going to, he is going to smother her. However, when you watch it the way it was supposed to be, because mm-hmm. you don't know that his character 
is crazy at all and you've only been introduced to him as sort of this nice side guy. Exactly. It comes as a surprise. And if they had just left it that way for the movie for audience to see, it would have been a big shock. Yep. And it was a big shock, actually. I mean, I, I was with, I was able to, like, watch the movie in a new, new way. And it was great to watch it. Yeah. And I actually think now it's one of his better movies, one of his better. Movies. I know. That's why I know See, we yeah. had this debate. And I didn't know that you got to the director's cut, but you yeah. were you were saying to me, I should watch the director's cut first as a different point of view. And I said, no, no, no. You really got to go watch them in order because I don't think you can appreciate I guess you would have thought, hey, this is a pretty good movie. And then you would have been shocked at how bad it was. That's what would have happened. Yeah. But, but I think it was more fun to say, what a mess, but not quite know what it was that he was going to do to put it back together the right yeah. way. And it's just shocked because the second half of the movie is exactly the same. Yeah. But the second half of the movie pays off way, way better. Plays completely differently. I, it, when I'm watching the theatrical cut, I was annoyed by the second half of the movie. Yes. I didn't like all the explanation scenes. I didn't feel like anything new was being revealed or that it was making any progress anywhere. Whereas now with this different order, I feel like I'm getting to know his character. Well, see, that shows you how he's this guy. He fits the pieces of the puzzle and yeah. you have to let him do it his way because everything pays off the way he intends it to. If you, exactly. let him, you know, and even Lithgow's performance, which I felt was like ridiculous and overacting and it just didn't work for me. Yeah. Is way better in the director's cut. And it's enjoyable. And I think that, <laughs> Uh, I watched a little clip with uh, Greg Henry. Yeah, he plays the detective in this one. He plays the cop in this one. I, I watched a little thing with him, a little interview with him, talking about one of the great things about Lithgow's performance is that Lithgow finds the comedy and the humor in all of these things. And that his performance is actually supposed to be kind of funny. Uh, in an over-the-top, joyful way. So the other, th here's the interesting thing about the Greg Henry bit is that every time Lithgow is acting with himself, yeah, Greg Henry played the other Lithgow. That's interesting. Yes, yeah. Greg Henry was the other Lithgow off camera in all those scenes. That's cool. Isn't that cool? Yeah, and Greg Henry, by the way, has a small role in Femme Fatale. Yes. Yep. Yeah, I mean, so it's such a weird journey that I've had with this Raising Cain that I went from thinking it was one of his worst films to one actually of his better films. Better films. Yeah. And now for me, the worst film is Black Dahlia, but Casualties of the War is the one I'll never rewatch. <laughs> yeah, I really, I can't recommend Casualties of War. Now, did you watch the director's cut with extra scenes? I would watch that. Is there one? There is. I, I think it's on like a Blu-ray or something. I haven't okay. seen it, but it also has Greg Henry in it, I think, in a scene that got cut out. Uh, no, I think he's in the movie. Well, then maybe you saw the director's cut. No, maybe I'm just getting my uh, Greg Henry confused. All I know is he's in a scene where he's part of the investigation. It's an extra scene. Okay. I know. I don't think I saw that. Okay. Yeah. But, uh, he, you know, so, but anyways, uh, yeah. So it's just so funny that, after watching all of these De Palma films, and this is where my suspicion is, is that even though I think Block Dahlia is, is just a train wreck, yeah. I wonder if you were able to see the full version, would things pay off in a different way? I bet they would. Well, because he's, he's a really interesting storyteller uh, in terms of how he presents information, how he works the proportion of time throughout things, but it, he introduces stuff in a way that you're 
kind of not quite sure how to fit it all together, but you trust that it does. And yeah, I think that he probably had a plan for the Black Dahlia. And at three hours, you'd probably see that plan a little more clearly. Yeah, but you also, you can't, uh, you can't unsee that Rose McGowan performance. Yeah. <laughs> she has this terrible. Here's the thing about Raising Cain is that I don't, I can't think of another example in cinema history like this, where you have a movie where the director's cut is exactly the same, just in different order. I can't, yeah. I can't. And it's, it's a fascinating lesson in how narrative works to watch these, these two versions. Well, yeah, but remember, remember the film was finished and it was these test audiences didn't like it. Right. So right, they right. probably, you know, in the way, you know how he has these set pieces and there isn't a lot for an editor to do. Right. Well, they probably didn't have a lot in the cutting floor to really probably like, we have to find a way to make this work with what we have. Yeah. And they did it by just, uh, and I was thinking about like who came up with rearranging this because it is, you know, they tried to create some logic out of it, but it what it feels like there's no real momentum or logic or flow to it until you see the order he wanted it in. But yeah, I can't think of another example where where you've had where you have the same film in different in a different order. Oh, I, I so there's a couple of little things that I also appreciate about Raising Cain. Yeah, that I that at the time when I saw it in '92, totally lost on me. Yeah, I like the fact that uh, the little girl was dressed like she was in don't look now she <laughs> i like yep. that yep. i i also i like i guess i like the ending is that uh you know, and again when i first saw it because it was so confusing because i had like right. a real out of order the whole movie was out of order it, it didn't make any sense i didn't think i picked up on it that clearly the little girl has had her personality split yes you know because that at the end with the rise up that's clearly she's still seeing him as those characters so exactly i, I appreciated that and then i appreciated seeing andrea zuckerman Oh, yes. As a tough yes. talking babysitter. <laughs> as soon as she came on, I was like, who is that? I know. Her. I had to Gabrielle pause. I, I had to pause and, and look it up. And I was like, oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> and then, of course, De Palma does that thing where I mentioned in Body Double, you had the joggers. And then Raising Cane, you have the joggers coming towards the car. Yes. And when her head's on the yeah. horn. Yeah. See, that's not a beginning scene. No, it's not a beginning That's scene. That's why it's so crazy. That's a scene that works way better where it goes in the new version. Yes, where you, man, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, there was one other thing I was going to say. Oh, yes, the movie did, one of the fake outs worked on me. Which one? The fake out on his father. What's that? Well, I thought the father was one of his personalities. Oh, that's because of the way they, they that's yes. because when it's all mixed up. It didn't make any sense and you weren't sure. Whereas if you watch it in the new version, yes. it's pretty clear that it's another character. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think that that's also designed a little bit to try to make you think what's real and what's not. Well, and having Lithgow play that character makes it seem like it's another one of his personalities. But in this, in the theatrical cut, especially when I had 20 minutes taken out, when I was watching it, we were like, I don't even freaking know what's going on. Like, what's real, what's not? I mean, it was such a bizarre experience. And just watching the theatrical cut from beginning to end without a real out of place yeah. it was already making way more sense than it did the first time around yeah. but then seeing the director's cut it makes even more sense yeah so i mean it's just this is just the thing is you can't change history and it's a shame that the film didn't come out the right way and he regrets he realizes that he bowed to pressure 
and he doubted himself. And that just shows you what interesting you know, failure as a director that he really should have stood up for his version. Yeah. And I think, boy, I, this is just such a little interesting piece of cinema history. And I, like I said, I can't think of another example that if you're you're into movies, you need to watch both these cuts because it's a really interesting experiment and viewing experience. And they're not, you know, that's the best part is it's not really that long a movie. So it's pretty easy to do. No, it's only 90 minutes. Yeah. And I have to say that I did kind of fast forward a little bit the second half just because it was the first half that was so different. I didn't fast forward. I got totally sucked into <laughs> it and I felt like the second half worked so much better. It is amazing. Well, I did. I mean, I only fast forward like little, little moments here and there, the stuff that I didn't really like. But like I said, it's just, it just shows you, you want to, if I was like a film professor and I wanted to teach kids about editing. And storytelling. And storytelling. I would we'd be watching both of these cuts. Absolutely. Yeah. And then I'd go a third step is that I would take that reel out of place. <laughs> <laughs> well, then, no, I would go I would go a third step and say, make your own cut of the movie. <laughs> yes, it's the raising cane cut. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, you know, again, it's been a lot of fun uh, going through here. But I think we have one little last film we were we were gonna touch base and I think it's to set the stage of that is that we kind of through things like the Black Dahlia, we really written this guy off. Yeah, and I never saw Redacted, which was his first film after Black Dahlia. I mean, I heard it's not good. I also heard that there's like a rape in it, that it's very yes. hard to watch. I am going to watch it because um, I am now a completionist and I'm going to try to see every damn movie he made. I'm very close, <laughs> so I will watch it. But, you know, these other, his last two movies, yeah. Last one, Domino, and then this other one, Passion. They did not get much of a release if they did at all. Yeah, I don't think I even heard of Passion until it was available on streaming. And that was, you know, years ago. Well, so it was one of those things where, like, honestly, I lost track. I knew that he had made something, yeah. but I had to look at IMDb to go, what, what did he do? And that's why I, I initially, when I started, I watched Domino because I could get my hands on it. It took right. a little bit more to get into watching Passion, but uh, Domino... I, I only saw a few traces of Brian De Palma. Right. And, but I was like, well, but I can see that, you know, someone was behind a couple of these scenes. Yeah. Then Passion, which you started off by telling me you saw like 20 minutes of it and it was unwatchable. That was your, that was your quote. That was my quote. So that was almost my challenge. I'm like, <laughs> I'm going to watch this. And at the, by the time it was all over, and even though I don't think it's, you know, super great, I was like, unmistakably, there are things going on in here that are more De Palma than has been in years, and you need to watch it. <laughs> this film is like Sisters in a way. Yeah. In, in, in the amount of De Palma that's in it. it I also <laughs> loved, I think, he, I think it was one of his better split screen uses in a long time. Great split screen. Yeah. Great split screen. That sequence was awesome. And just, uh, you know, it, here's another thing where I think he gets how absurd the story is. It's way absurd. It's way, I mean, there's just, it, it's total, it's totally preposterous. And I think he gets that. And that's why he stages things sort of over the top and sort of hokey and, you know, really emphasizing things with these Dutch angles or like really severe lighting and, and these performances that are kind of a little silly. You know, he's also very self-reflexive in that, you know, that whole idea of you're watching a movie yes. and that there's a difference between movies are sensationalized and yet, if you just pulled back and if it was like a security camera, it would be different. And I'm thinking that there's this sequence that shows 
the what Naomi Rapace. Yeah, Naomi Rapace. Yeah, yeah, I don't know. I, never, yeah. I don't know how to say your name. Uh, so sue us. You, the <laughs> scene where she freaks out and crashes her car. Right. She goes, and that's yes. ridiculous and over the top, right? But then, and I'm not going to give it away, but they, you get we to see, see that we again. We see it again from a security camera footage. And yeah. it feels like, an, like the whole idea of it is way different if you yes. didn't know what was going on with the character. Yes. And it just... It does. It looks like, wow, look at somebody's freaking out. It's just interesting how the perspective changes. Well, and one thing I thought, I think I mentioned this to you, but like, I, you know, I'm watching Dress to Kill and looking at how Keith Gordon has to set up his camera and that box and the bike. I'm glad you, I'm glad before we go, you're talking about this because as a kid. Oh, so awesome. I just thought, whoa, that's ingenious. And yeah. I still enjoyed the result, even though I'm like, boy, wouldn't you think that uh, Michael Kane would look out his window and notice there's a kid <laughs> spending an enormous amount of time setting up this elaborate thing on his bike and that no one's stealing the bike? <laughs> no one's stealing. Well, he does lock it. Well, okay. <laughs> he, put, he puts a chain on it. Uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> but yes, yeah, so this is this thing. It's this idea of like capturing stuff. Exactly. And the, and seeing things through telescopes or cameras and it's all with new technology. So there's security cameras and camera phones and email. And it was cool to see all the diploma isms with modern technology well okay so this is where the last thing i watched right before this program i rewatched snake eyes and oh yeah seeing it after seeing all of these De Palma things that whole movie is all about security cameras and right. capturing stuff and using uh security camera systems at the casino to figure out and unpiece the mystery right, of what took right. place. And there's this whole like Zabruder film aspect to Snake Eyes, which is some of the best parts of the movie. Yes. Um, so he does that. And then, of course, going back to one of the early films that I watched, Hi, Mom, is all about this voyeur who is trying to make a new kind of cinema by filming the goings-ons of the people that live in the apartment building across the way. Right. And then he gets involved with radicals uh, who are putting on performance art to give elitist white people the black experience. That's hilarious. You need to see this movie. Yeah. Oh, I totally got to see that. You have, and they, they, it's, 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 it's outrageous. Um, it's definitely not something you'd be able to see today <laughs> yeah. kind of thing. But uh, it's just there's these little things that De Palma has always been doing. Yes. And uh, again, like from, you know, from Phantom of the Paradise. So like when you watch these movies as a whole, you see things that you just would not ever see individually. Actually makes the films more enjoyable. It's sort of like <laughs> it's it's uh, going to try to think how to describe this. Like I have a few favorite albums. Right. That the first time I listened to them, I was like, yeah, it's pretty good. And then after five or six lesson listens, I was like. This is pretty great. Yes. Well, that's why I'm, I think I'm going to watch Blowout again. Yeah. And it's because you kind of, you know, it, with the band, you get in, you get to understand like what they're doing in the, in their songs and it makes sense to you and it feels familiar and you can sing along with it. And DePama's a little bit like that. We haven't talked about Femme Fatale. Didn't we talk about it in the last episode at all? Or I can't I mean, even we've remember. Talking, we've talked about bits of it, but there's that whole thing, like I was saying, where you know 
the ridiculousness of the idea that there would be somebody, a doppelganger of hers, that would look so much like her that people would <laughs> accidentally think that uh, this person who was very suicidal was going to throw herself off of a balcony of a hotel and they would right. take her home <laughs> thinking that that was her daughter that they just saved. Um, and then the daughter comes in and then there, then we go into this whole prolonged uh, sort of weird sliding doors fantasy yes that makes no sense as to like how she can see all this stuff that might have happened and then it comes back again it makes no sense but yet it's still enjoyable in a weird way and that film is so stylish yeah i mean you know again from the so for us the moviegoer who's now enjoying all of these things it's a treat for some producer who wants to make 60 million dollars in a weekend <laughs> it is not it's a treat. not and that i think is the problem is that yeah. you know ultimately it's about getting people to enjoy a movie right then and there without seeing everything else yes and there's just not you know there's not hordes of people out there looking for another raising cane <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, Femme Fatale, I, I just wanted to mention that I've seen the first, the opening of that movie, like the first 20 minute heist sequence, I've seen probably 20 times because it is, in my mind, one of the best examples of cross-cutting action and the way it's edited between the different things that are going on and the mechanics of it are just amazing, along with the music. There's also a lot of video camera stuff in that, too. There's a lot of video camera stuff in it, yeah. Now, did you used to show this to film classes or something? Yes, I did, because it's such a good lesson in how to build tension. Oh, and the other reason I would show it is because it's pure cinema. It's like, you can watch it with the sound off. Right. And it totally works. Like, uh, you know, I mean, the music is great, but like you could take the dialogue out. The dialogue is is pointless. Well, it is pointless because that was the whole thing. I told you I first watched it and it was all in French and I still could understand what was going on. And it doesn't matter at all if it's all in French. And so that's part of the reason I would show it is like, think about how you write cinema, not write dialogue. You know, how would you write that sequence? And that's De Palma's genius is that he comes up with those sequences. And it's not about character development or, you know, the sort of the normal things we're expecting from a movie. It's it, He's not interested. I mean, a Mission Impossible, right? It's famous for these sequences that everybody loves. But yeah. those are the sequences that show off De Palma at his best. Yes. And which is why, the, it's why that film will always be one of the best. It's not the most action-packed and exciting, but it's got that sequence where, you know, he's hanging up and he has yes. to, like, you know, steal the knock list. Yeah, that sequence where he's stealing the knock list and he's suspended uh, in that server room uh, is, I I think, lifted or homage to uh, Top Cappy from 1964. Which is Jules Dassan. Which is Jules Dassan and dual theft going on, and they suspend from the ceiling in that. And, you know, it's it, to me, it's like De Palma doing the, uh, the steps sequence in Untouchables. Right. He will take these things from other films and kind of turn them into something uh, of his own. Exactly. I really want to watch Carlito's Way again. I do. Kind of, I watched a few scenes on the internet just in preparation. I watched the trailer. Because I realized, you know, there was films that we weren't going to talk about 
because yeah. I just didn't get to watch rewatch them. But at the, I'm like, I can't rewatch everything. But I decided, well, I got to see Snake Eyes again because <laughs> that's short. Uh, you know, uh, we've kind of been focusing on the lesser known. You know, we didn't spend a long time on Untouchables or Mission Impossible, some uh, the bigger films. I mean, those are the Palma films all the way. But I feel yeah. like the reason is, is that we started the first episode on De Palma was that those are the ones everyone has seen. Yes. And those are great. And they definitely help propel him to make other films. But there are so much more to him than those movies. And some interesting weirdness to him. Some some of his weirdness gets a little, uh, the edges get taken off in those big movies. But I like his, I, I like his weirdness. I like his weird obsessions. I, uh, <laughs> I'm interested in, uh, in what he's doing. And yeah, Raising Cain is great. I know. See, how do we go from this movie is terrible to now saying the word great with Raising Cain? It's shocking. But you have to see the director's cut to get there. You, exactly. You have to see. Yeah. Uh, the, the, the theatrical cut is just a disaster in every way. It's a terrible movie. And even as disastrous as that version is, it's still way better than The Black Dahlia. Yeah, so the Black Dahlia, I mean, we haven't seen everything here, but what's worse, Black Dahlia or Bonfire of the Vanities? From my memory, yeah, Bonfire of the Vanities is better. Yeah. Because it wasn't, it's just, it's a great book. Yeah. And it's just, it was just, again, just like uh, Casualties of War, there's certain films that Brian De Palma shouldn't make, and that was one of them. Yep. Now, I don't know who should have made Bonfire of the Vanities, but it shouldn't have been him. It shouldn't have been Brian De Palma. Yeah, and, and that's, I feel that way with Casualties of War. Well, it was also stocked with a lot of actors that were like, oh, Bruce Willis is hot right now. Melanie Griffith just got an Oscar nomination for Working Girls. And yeah. Tom Hanks is is, is big. <laughs> Tom Hanks is big right now. Yeah, let's just throw them all in and there. And yet, you know, regardless of the fact that they should have been cast in that movie, they were the right. wrong people for every role. <laughs> every role was the wrong, yes. Well, we've talked about this. De Palma's miscasting at times. But then every now and then he gets a Craig Lawson who, like, gets the movie on a whole new level but he was only in that movie of his nothing he was never in he wasn't one of the stock cavalcade of actors i know but uh, you know i think that uh john lithgow is one of those too he's in three of his films but always a bad guy yes always a bad guy but yeah i i, I really like lithgow and and it's nice to uh see the young lithgow yeah well and you can also see him he's pretty young looking in uh blowout as well yes yep but uh yeah, I mean, supposedly, I was reading that he has an idea for, you know, his next toward film, and he was he was going to kind of gear it towards the Me Too movement, where he's okay. very fascinated at just how despicable Harvey Weinstein uh, yeah. turned out to be, and he thought that there's a movie in that. And, you know, he's at 80, I don't know whether or not he'll make another film. Yeah, well, he's got two uh, announced on his IMDb page. Yeah, but you know how good that is. <laughs> well, I know, I, I know, it's just, yeah. <laughs> No, it, yeah. So we may see more, we may not, but but we've got thirty movies, and I know a big chunk of those, like the first five or six, these are like these very, you know, they almost don't count, but still a lot of features, a lot of stuff to go through, and I think we've covered a good chunk of them in these few episodes. So, hey, kids, this has been your uh, fun-loving host, Jimmy, and I will see you soon on the next program. I don't know if I'll see you, but I guess I'll talk to you. Um, so on behalf of Till and I, uh, stuff we've seen, stuffweseen.com. Um, also, uh, feedback at stuffweseen.com. You can get a hold of us there. And I look forward to bringing you more episodes. Uh, we've been around now for two years, two years running. 
and we hope to bring you many more. Talk to you later.